0: Hello and welcome to episode number 34 of The Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you all are safe and well. Well, I'm still coming to you from the homestead where uh, where it's allergy season, I might add. Our month off is just about to end, but it has been some great family time. And I am re-energized and I'm ready for spring tour. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the last episode with my guest Jackie Green. I've gotten some great feedback, and it is much appreciated. As you may remember, we dedicated that episode to Rick Turner, who passed away on April 17th, just days after I'd seen him at the Skull and Roses Festival out in Ventura, California. Rick was an iconic and groundbreaking luthier who was not only integral to the Grateful Dead, but helped to shape the sound of rock and roll in the 60s and 70s. His contributions to the world of electric guitars included starting Alembic in the 60s, the Modulus Guitar Company in the 70s, and designing and building guitars that were used by Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, Jack Cassidy, and Lindsey Buckingham, just to name a few. His vast knowledge of sound properties and equipment were at the forefront of the industry, and he was one of the creators of the Dead's famous wall of sound. I had the pleasure of meeting Rick last year and was able to document a conversation with him last June that I split over four episodes, starting with number 16. At the time, I cut out a lot of the super technical stuff, but today I'm bringing it to you largely unedited. Rick had had a resurgence in the public eye lately, with his famous Mission Control bass used by Phil and Jerry's peanut guitar back out there and being played by some of today's finest Grateful Dead musicians. When I saw him in Ventura just days before his passing, He was helping to curate a lending library of iconic instruments, and was just so happy that the instruments were being played, rather than being behind glass in a museum case. While this is not a typical feature that I might bring you, I think it's important to honor a man who was a legend to many, but may have been more of a behind-the-scenes yet very important force in the world of the Grateful Dead, and music in general. Even though many of you might not be well versed in the technical side of the music industry, uh, there's a lot here that's really, really interesting and it's quite a history lesson as well. So before we get started, I humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from home and on the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net, and wherever you are listening, please take the time to rate, like, and review. So let's get started with my unedited conversation with the legendary Rick Turner. Okay, well here I am today, and I have my friend Rick Turner with me. How are you, my friend?
1: I am great. I'm great, Rob.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time. You know, uh, when we met a couple of weeks ago in, in Santa Cruz, I was just like, we had some great stories. I was like, I got to get them on the podcast. There's so much <laughs> to hear from him. So uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time. So you you are a master Luther. Has, you've built guitars for some legendary players. You've co-founded Alembic Guitars. Some of your earliest guitars were built for members of the dead. How how did you get started in this business?
1: Um. Well, I started off as a folky uh, back east, um, you know, going going back into my high school years. So I I did my first major restoration when I was about 15 years old and it was on a Fairbanks and Cole five string banjo that I found in an antique store in my hometown of of Marblehead, Massachusetts. And I'd gotten into the Kingston Trio at that point and and. I was headed down that, uh, that folky path. And when I went off to a boarding school for three years, um, I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into the folk scene. And, um, and I'd grown up in a town where people made stuff. They made boats. They, you know, they did. So working with your hands and making stuff was kind of normal to me. And, um, you know, I'd had a boat when I was a kid. I did a lot of the maintenance on it myself. So um, so the idea of working on the instrument was uh, it's just kind of a natural, you know. So I graduated from high school in 62, wound up at Boston University the fall of 62. And um, I hated BU, but I loved the... Coffee house scene. So I majored in coffee house. Uh, <laughs> and and um and got to see amazing performers. This was a time when uh you know, when you could see Bill Monroe in a coffee house or or uh Mississippi John Hurt or or uh Reverend Gary Davis. Uh That's and so cool. and it was uh an amazing scene. I started going to the Newport Folk Festivals and um and I was playing guitar and I got good enough at, at playing guitar to to you know be playing in some of the coffee houses with friends. But in I guess it was 63, I uh I found a guitar repair shop in Boston. Uh, I'd been making some woven um, leather guitar straps and these guys really liked the straps and said come work for us and you know in about a week and a half I made more guitar straps than they could sell in six months and, and so <clears throat> there was a pile of um, Mexican uh, paracho made classical guitars that uh, a, a local folky music store <clears throat> had bought that imported them. I think they'd paid eight bucks a piece for these guitars or something like that. But 12 of them fell off the of rack onto the floor. And so there was everything wrong with them that you could imagine. And my bosses at the, uh, at the guitar, at string uh, instrument workshop said, well, Rick, why don't you, um, start learning how to fix these things? And so Bit by bit, I started picking up some luthery skills from these two guys that were, one guy was a great jazz guitar player. And the only problem with him in luthery was that he was paranoid as hell of hurting his hands. The other guy was a really good cabinet maker with no real guitar connection. But Between the two of them, they were figuring it out. Um so come along to 1965 I'd gotten uh, good enough banging out licks on my D28 to get a gig uh with the Canadian folk singers Ian and Sylvia. Uh fast forward to a Grateful Dead connection uh, Ian and Sylvia were on the Festival Express. Right right right. Yeah. And 5 years before that I I was their guitar player. And um You know, so it was about nine months of of, of 1965 playing venues like Boston Symphony Hall and uh, Lincoln Center in New York, Hollywood Bowl, um, just amazing uh, venues and a lot of coffee houses. And for the last five months of it, um, Ian and Sylvia hired a bass player Felix Popularity, who went on to become Mountain's a Cream's producer and and the bass player and singer in Mountain. So right. um so I vaulted uh, you know, at age twenty two into a pretty elite uh scene of the of the, you know, God, I mean there were how many people had a gig like mine in the United oh, States? Geez. Maybe six or seven right you know and um did um did a studio album with them um uh, and uh subsequently uh i'm on a, a live at newport folk festival album with them too um but i sort of maintained my interest in hands-on stuff um So moving on to 66, uh, Sylvia was pregnant, didn't want to tour for a while. And I I wound up moving from Cambridge to New York and joining a rock and roll band. And um, so suddenly I was, you know, no more D28. I'm dealing with electric guitars. And they... Felt alien to me at first, and and then I I got into it, and then in it must have been late '66 or early '67. A fan of our band um, was a an apartment manager in New York. He, he managed some building on the Lower East Side or something like that, and a um, a tenant had left <clears throat> and left behind this smashed um Les Paul custom neck was okay which is really odd um cuz those necks break easier than anything um so I I had a cabinet shop rough out a mahogany body to a shape that I designed and um and that became the guitar ultimately known as Peanut that uh uh, you know, when I moved out to the West Coast and essentially stopped playing electric guitar, I sold it to Jerry Garcia. And so that's the album that's on the Skullfuck album. Right. Uh, that's the, the guitar on the Skullfuck album, you know, or one of them. So. Anyway. Um, so we, the band Auto Salvage uh, recorded for RCA Um our album went lead. (laughs) (laughs) We got great reviews in, uh, in a couple of magazines, including Rolling Stone. But by the time the Rolling Stone article came out, the band was essentially defunct, Uh. you know, it's the usual thing, you know, it was kind of like our spinal tap moment. You know, we get the great review when the band just split up, you know, right. So, um, so my wife and I moved out to uh, California. Our our very good friends uh, who were the Youngbloods uh had moved from uh they they got together in Massachusetts kind of starting in Martha's Vineyard then Cambridge moved to New York and then they moved to California to Marin County to West Marin. And um you know they they encouraged me to move out uh I had hoped to bring the band with me uh, and we had some potential gigs lined up, but the band wouldn't move. I did. Um, And um, so I wound up in California in 68, a little house out in West Marin. And um, I was doing uh, studio work uh, recording with um, the a guy who had left the Young Youngbloods, Jerry Corbett. Uh, we did, for instance, we did Don McLean's first album together. I played wow. bass on that album, and wow. um, and uh, there was a Jerry Corbett so- solo album that Charlie Daniels produced, and um, so from '68 into 1970, I was still being a pro musician and, but being a craftsman too, and. I I decided that I wanted, you know, I knew a couple of people that were one man shop building acoustic guitars. And I decided I wanted to be the, the one man shop uh you know, electric guitar person right. or electric sure. bass. And um and at that time, you know, we're looking 1968-69, you couldn't buy pickups. I mean, Seymour Duncan wasn't around and Larry DiMarzio wasn't around and and uh, Gibson wasn't selling pickups. Fender wasn't selling pickups. But I'd known Dan Armstrong in New York and saw what he was up to. And I figured, well, you know, what's a pickup? It's a magnet structure and a coil of wire. So I went to Radio Shack and bought some magnets and bought some wire and started laboriously, literally, hand-winding pickups. Uh, you know, mm, one, two, right. three, you know. And <laughs> eventually, I, you know, i tired of that, actually pretty quickly, and built up a little machine with a sewing machine motor and, and a speed control and a, and a counter on it. And um, at that time, uh, you know, the young bloods were there, <clears throat> I also wound up doing some roadieing for them and mixing sound for them. Their office was in Point Reyes Station. The secretary was a woman named Florence Nathan, who went on to become known as Rosie McGee. You know, one of the, you know, right. you, you know, Rosie. You know, yeah. So, um, she saw what I was up to. I built a bass. My first instrument was a bass for Jesse Colin Young, and. Um, she said, "Oh man, you ought to you ought to meet my boyfriend and and um, and meet the band." And that meant Phil Lesh and the Grateful Dead. And so um, she arranged uh, for me to go out from Point Reyes to the the Dead's Pink Warehouse in Novato, and uh, where I met the band and met uh, met Owsley and um, Ron Wickersham, who was working on electronics for the band. And, um, and I turned out to sort of be the missing link. I mean, uh, Bear Owsley had this concept of a group of engineers and technicians and craftspeople, and he called it Alembic. And he'd brought in, and he had Bob Matthews and, and Betty Cantor, Betty Cantor Jackson, um, recording engineers, uh, and and live sound mixers um, Ron Wickersham who uh, was an electronics genius and had come from Ampex and I showed up and I was I became the sort of the designated luthier but I also was quite familiar with how recording studios work from being a musician and in, in a recording musician and also I'd, I'd been out on the road mixing uh, the young bloods. So it was very convenient to have me as someone who could fill in here and fill in there. And, um, you know, at the, t- so in spring of 1970, there was this idea of doing um, this cross country caravan this became uh, the Great Medicine Ball Caravan. And uh, the dead were supposed to be on this tour. The idea was take a, a bunch of musicians and a hundred other people and gear and do a bus tour from the West Coast to the East Coast and then to England, and sort of reverse the cultural migration of East to West and go West to East, with a bunch of hippies, you know, (laughs) and um, so we, uh, Alembic signed on to do the PA and the live 16 track recording. Um, And in order to be able to sign a contract with Warner brothers, they insisted that we incorporate. So we did. And, uh, and the three stockholders, three equal stockholders, were Bob Matthews, Ron Wickersham, and myself.
2: And, and, and this uh, is this is the genesis of Alembic then right there.
1: This 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 is the official. This is Alembic becoming a real company. Yeah. So that would be June of of 1970, and. You know, we somehow magically acquired a whole bunch of assets that included the PA system that Bear had paid for. He did not want to be an official part of the corporation. Uh, You know, he was always, always tried to be as underground as he could be while being in the middle of it all.
0: Right. We're gonna get back to our conversation with Rick, but right now I'd like to take a minute and tell you about Beth Koritz. She is a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she has been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do, increase your confidence by activating your inner powers, and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passions, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth Koritz. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page at themusicplaystheband.net. Beth is looking forward to supporting you on your journey. And now, back to our conversation with the late Rick Turner. Some, some of those first... Olympic guitars and basses,
2: because you started with the bass. You said, "Yeah, those went straight into the hands of the guys in the dead."
1: Yeah, and- the Olympic number one went to Jack Cassidy, and you saw that bass uh, on uh, uh, White Rabbit at right. your gig in, in Felton, right? And then, yeah, and the earliest, the earliest instruments went into um, spectacular hands. You know, do you We're remember also- the
2: reactions? Huh? Do you remember their reactions when they got these oh, instruments? Oh, yeah, they were
1: delighted. I mean, you know, we it was interesting because the dead, the airplane, to a lesser extent, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, primarily Crosby, um, were really funding research and development with all of this stuff. And the money was flowing uh, like you wouldn't believe. And the suits hadn't taken over yet, right. you know? Right. So um, so they were able, they trusted us. I know I gained a, a, a fair degree of trust because they knew that I was a musician. They knew where I was coming from, basically the same place. I diverged away from being primarily a musician to being primarily a luthier. But still, um, you know, I mean, Garcia was very aware of my work with Ian and Sylvia, for instance. And 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 that kind of playing was close to his roots in right. in music. You know, sort of bluegrass based flat picking is what right. I what I've been doing, you know. So um we had a lot of trust from the musicians. And then we delivered the goods. Um, you know I uh, w- What had happened um, before Olendek became official was that I'd I'd gotten into making pickups, took them out to Ron, who had figured out a way to measure the frequency response of the pickups. And it turned out that my pickups were better than anything he had ever tested. Uh, And then we figured out why. And it was because I was winding basically Significantly lower impedance coils, larger wire, fewer turns.
2: I want to ask you about the difference. Well, first of all, I want to go back when you started building the guitars, not just the pickups. What what were some of the of the electric guitars that inspired you when you well, started building?
1: Um, I had um, in auto salvage. I'd played a three thirty five, which was uncomfortable to me. I played a Strat. Then I got a, um, then I I made Peanut, which I I liked very much. And I also, oddly enough, had a Fender Duo Sonic that I really liked. And then I wound up with this amazing and now very rare um, Epiphone Coronet six-string bass that when I plugged it into a four ten basement and cranked it, sounded like a badass baritone saxophone, you know? So and I'd oh also I'd gotten I was an early adopter of pedals. I mean in nineteen sixty seven I had a pedal board, you know, which was pretty rare in those days. Um so um
2: so are you taking like characteristics from each of these guitars that you like
1: well yeah and and, and so um one of the reasons i got into bases first was because jesse colin young ordered a bass, you know so i built him a bass, you know um that led to um to the work with phil and then jack um and then we, you know, of course, in those very early days of Olympic, we did a lot of modding, so you had uh, you know, the strat that uh, that Graham Nash gave to uh, Jerry, right? Turning into what we now know as alligator, alligator. you know, and a lot of that was it, It's funny, you know, the musicians would come in and it would kind of be got anything in mind, you know, it's like uh, and you know, I'd also started making the metal parts in oh, pretty early on. Before Alembic, I was making uh, brass bridges and brass nuts and welded brass tail pieces and stuff like that. And um, somewhere along the line came the idea of putting a big block of brass under the bridge as a stain block. And and then when I started building, I, the earliest instruments I built had a, a set neck, glued on neck. And then I realized, you know, for the limited tools that I have and for how much handwork I'm doing, it would be just as easy to run the neck all the way through the body. And so that became sort of the, uh, one of the defining uh, aspects of the alembic instruments and alembic number 1 jack space has the neck through the body right and it it just became a relatively easy way to figure out how to build the instruments you know and a lot of this was also <clears throat> um i was learning uh production woodworking as i went along i mean the, the funny thing is when when we moved the the factory uh, up to Catati from uh, San Francisco. I met these guys in, in Sonoma who had, um, they, they were responsible for the resurgence of Oak toilet seats,
2: Oak toilet seats,
1: toilet seats. And they had this factory in Sonoma making Oak toilet seats and other bathroom accessories. I mean, the funny thing was they'd, they'd take a, a rectangular block of oak and they'd cut the the perimeter <laughs> of the toilet seat out. The corners would then be turned into uh, tell bar ra- uh, brackets.
2: A whole the, bathroom set.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the inside of the toilet seat would become a round um, towel holder the inside of the round towel holder went off to a company that made wooden toys and they'd become wheels and it was just you know so it was like incredibly efficient use of the wood but also the place was really well set up with um woodworking equipment major major stuff shapers and overarm pin routers and all that kind of stuff and I just absorbed the how they were making stuff using uh, templates and fixtures and all that, and adapted that to um, the making Alembic uh, guitars and basses.
2: How much does, I got two questions on this. How much does the wood make a wood difference, counts. sonically speaking? Sonically speaking, is the wood the most important thing in that guitar, in a guitar?
1: No, the hands of the player are the most important thing.
2: Of course. But getting the human out of the area.
1: Yeah, wood counts and necks are really important. Um, uh, You know, um, one end of the string is attached to the body, the other is attached to the neck, you know. And, um, And the string is vibrating and... Putting energy in, and the energy is bouncing back at both ends. And um, one of the things that we realized with a limbic was that uh, a stiff neck was a good thing because it would reflect string energy. If it it wouldn't suck the energy out of the string, it would reflect it back into the string, and that meant sustain
2: that kind of leads me into a question i was going to ask you later but i'm going to go there now because you're talking about that stiff neck is that where later on when you guys came up with the concept of a graphite guitar neck is that the reason
1: absolutely 100 100 that's exactly where where we went to that one was interesting because in about 1976 i think it was 76 early 76 I read this article in, I think it was Mechanics Illustrated, on the Mossman uh, carbon fiber graphite uh, bicycle frame. This was the first bicycle made out of of carbon fiber. And Mossman, the funny thing was, they were a shotgun company, uh, or Mossberg, Mossberg, Mossman, uh, Mossberg, Mossberg, anyway. Somehow or other, they'd gone off into this, you know, let's, let's make a carbon fiber bicycle. And, um, and it was tubular construction. And my brain went, bingo. <laughs> um, and right about that time, Jeff Gould came by Alembic's store in store uh, in San Francisco and left off some samples of carbon fiber and aluminum honeycomb and satellite antenna. He was working for a company called uh, AeroNeutronic, which is a division of Ford, Ford Aerospace. And he was a deadhead. And he, I believe, was thinking in terms of, gee, they could make speaker cones out of this stuff that would be incredibly stiff and lightweight and wouldn't break up. I saw this stuff, and I went the other way, and and said, "No, we, you know, yeah, yeah, that could work, but um, base necks." And so, uh, you know, I understood enough about molding fiberglass and materials like that, which is kind of similar to molding carbon fiber, to make a um, a master of a base neck that had the right uh relief angles in it to be able to get parts out of the mold and um took it down to aeronautronic and they made a mold and and bingo they came up with a couple of necks put it all together <laughs> with 5 minute epoxy um and uh got it together and it worked it 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 was great it was stiffer than hell and uh, it sounded great and um and it was right about the time that Fleetwood Mac was recording "Rumors" in in Sausalito, so I took it down and showed it to John McVie. This is a whole other story, but and he said, "Oh, I want it!" Bingo. So John McVie got the first carbon fiber uh, base neck. Is- we did show it at NAM, um, and uh, and we immediately applied for a patent on it, which which came through in. 78 i think it was um and so that was the that was the startup of um that became the startup of of modules
2: uh, right uh, right, let me let me ask you this all this work whether it's with the wood or the carbon fiber or any of it, all this meticulous work that you do on these guitars is completely by hand what's your favorite part of the build
1: it's uh And by the way,
2: Brad Sarno wanted me to ask you that question.
1: Yeah, for me, it's um, it's chasing the invention. You know, uh, it turns out that I've got a—I don't have schooling in engineering, but I have a very good intuitive understanding um, of of how this shit works. You know, Uh, Uh and so. And that's, it has served me well um, for decades now. You know, it's just, um, I also have this attitude about making stuff, which is that um, it's stuff. It's not, I'm a metal worker, I'm a woodworker, I'm a this, I'm a that. No, you're making stuff. And you figure it out, you know, at it's funny I've, two of my sons are very uh adept with their hands too uh my oldest son uh, has an amazing uh, architectural high-end architectural metalworking shop in marin and he's got the same attitude i mean wood metal it's all the same you know okay so you Use screws over here, use bolts over here, whatever, you know, and, and anything that you need to make that you haven't made before. um, There's a, there's a process, a, a sequence of operations for any of this stuff. And you just, you do it when you come up against something you don't know how to do, you ask somebody, you figure it out, whatever, you know, and, and so... It, it's really a, a, a mindset, knowing how to make stuff. And it, it almost doesn't matter what it's made out of. You can figure out how to work with it, you know, whether it's casting plastics or making silicon rubber molds to make pickups or whatever. It's just stuff. And each bit of stuff has its specific techniques and, and materials, But once you get into it, it's all the same. Right. It's Uh,
0: just stuff.
1: It's just stuff.
0: Wow. That's amazing stuff. Quite the history lesson right there. Uh, When we return, we're going to hear Rick talk about the genesis and construction of the Grateful Dead's famous wall of sound. Uh, This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. Grateful Sweats' subtle song designs will strike a chord for heads who get it. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of gear like hoodies, beanies, and of course sweatpants, as well as other Grateful goodies with more than 30 designs, like Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, and my personal favorite Eyes of the World. Visit Etsy.com slash shop gratefulsweats Grateful Sweats or get there from the sponsor page at our website. And right now, if you use the code THE Music Plays, you can save 10% and receive a free PIN. And don't miss the clearance section with items up to 80% off. So as soon as you're done listening today, head on over to Grateful Sweats. I want to move on from the guitars
2: if you don't mind and yeah. and 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 I'd like let's talk a bit about your work in sound reinforcement with the Dead, specifically the Wallace sound. Now, it's
1: just stuff.
2: <laughs> it's just stuff. There you go. Thank you ladies and gentlemen. That was Rick Turner. Um, <laughs> well, now, I, I've had Brad come on the show. You know, Brad's on my he yeah. appears regularly and he sponsors this segment and he's explained to the folks that are listening about the concept, you know, of each player having their own channel and their yeah, own tower of right. speakers and their individual control. But I got to ask you since they already kind of know what it is, how in the world did you guys come up with this?
1: Well, physics, it's all based on physics. Um, and, uh, you know, Ron and I took um, a, sound system design course uh, by this guy Don Davis Synodcon and um, and the Synodcon course reinforced a bunch of stuff that we already were that we knew and were thinking and it introduced us to some new ways of thinking about it and measuring the results um, one of the One of the keys was that for sound system design, particularly for indoors, there is this critical distance in a hall away from the stage. And at that critical distance, the reverberation of the room takes over from the direct sound of the sound system and you get mud. And so what you wanna do is you wanna push that critical distance as far to the back wall as you possibly can. You know, the ideal for sound systems is outdoors because you're only dealing with one reflective surface and that's the ground and the people on it. And that tends to dampen things a lot. You go indoors and you've got reflections from the back wall. You have that slap back. You got off of the sidewalls, you got off of the ceiling, and you got off the back wall. And it all leads to a big, confusing bunch of mush. And ideally, a sound system would hit the audience only and never bounce off of any surfaces. So when you're designing a sound system, you want to design for maximum directivity, directing it to the audience. The other thing that you want to do is you want to get distance. You want to project. And ideally, you project without it being too loud up front and too weak way in back. Well, an RCA engineer named Harry Olson. Uh, who is responsible for much of the modern design of the ribbon microphone among the guys got dozens of patents. He was a, a genius. He did a whole bunch of, of studies. You know, one was just like, what does the shape of a speaker cabinet have to do with the dispersion of sound? And so he did all these experiments and then he got into, um, the whole thing of uh, line array theory and uh and so the line array theory became the central <clears throat> uh, focus of our work with the wall of sound
2: so that's really the precursor to the to the line array this is the original line array
1: well uh, there's uh, that's a, the the individual per person is kind of a separate issue from the line array theory itself, okay. so the wall of sound wound up being what is it, six or seven line arrays? Gotcha.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: That gets back to not wanting to to mix the sound together and have them intermodulate and distort one another out of normal speaker cabinets. You know, a normal a normal thing. The other thing is that bear was adamantly opposed to what we think of as normal stereo, and um, and so so <clears throat> um, and when you think about it, um, stereo as we know it doesn't work, and particularly in live sound, uh, you know if you're uh, thirty feet closer to the left stack than you are to the right stack. Uh, you got a sound. You got a delay happening in what you're hearing. Well, um, one, of,
2: yeah. one of the things I wondered about that, and I asked Brad, and he wasn't sure if, if let's say, so in each of those stacks was only that one instrument, and that was the only tower it was coming out of. Correct. Yes, correct. So if someone's on the right side of the room, are they still hearing clearly what's coming out of a tower that's way on the other side of the? They're stage? not
1: hearing it. They're not hearing it as well. But but because the line array, um basically controls the vertical dispersion of sound and widens the horizontal uh, dispersion. Um, you know, think of it as like a um, um, a pipe organ uh, where, you know, each note is coming from a discrete...
2: Right, note. sure, of course, of course, across the... Of course, yeah. okay,
1: so, okay. So no, you're not going to hear the same mix if you're far stage right or far stage left. But you can also, the brain is a strange thing when it comes to interpreting sounds. There is, for instance, what is known as the cocktail party effect, where you can be in a room full of people, and if you want to pay attention the two people who are over there talking to one another, you can tune out the other people in the room to a certain degree. And it has to do with, with the, the phase relationship of sound and our ears more than the physical volume. Um, and there, there's another thing that Bear was adamant about was that phase relationships are what it's about. Far more important than uh, relative loudness levels, and <clears throat> and so the thing is with the wall of sound, you could be in the audience and feel that the guitar sound was coming from there, not there and there and there and there and there, you know. And with the cluster vocal, the vocal cluster over in the center there was much more of a feeling that the vocals were coming from the singers, not, you know, something over there and something 50 feet over there, you know? Right. So the integration of sound and visual, of, it, of, of seeing the band and hearing the band, it was a much tighter integration than we are currently used to with the way sound systems work. Um, this thing
2: it's this thing was huge. It's a Herculean task what you're doing there. and Oh,
1: was ridiculous. It yeah.
2: had to cost a small fortune. So did you guys just go to no, the band? A
1: large fortune. <laughs> okay, so it
2: had to cost a large fortune. So do you just go to the band and say, hey, this is what we want to do. Can we have some money?
1: No, no, it was funny because um, in about at about the time that we that Alembic uh, moved to the 60 Brady Street studio, which was a, a, a quite an endeavor, um, the band decided that renting the sound system from us was costing too much money, and it would cost them a lot less if they owned it. <laughs> well, they started playing larger and larger venues, and because we were... The sound system guys, it was like, okay, what are we gonna do? And you know, and and bear in 1969, I heard Bear tell a band the solution is to put the PA behind the band. Everybody thought he was out of his mind. It couldn't possibly work. So we the, the system starts getting bigger and bigger. We wind up 73, I don't know, Boston Music Hall. Um, I was on the road with him. Uh, there were still uh, the Ampex MX-10 mixers being used. I was doing a lot of the, the front of house mixing. Uh, we get to the Boston Music Hall, and between the back line and the PA, there's no room for the PA. The stage wasn't wide enough. So it was okay, bring in the scaffolding and put the PA up top. And that was and the, that was the first, first gig gig. Um, where the PA went behind the band, wow! It, so it was
2: happy accident almost. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
1: And the uh, other funny thing about that gig was that I was the guy from Boston. I knew my way around. Well, the, the city of Boston had changed every street in Boston to being one way against me. You know. <laughs> Anyway, that was the memorable gig where, oh, this works. And anyway, so we, you know, we sold the system to 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 the band and it had to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it was like, okay, it works behind the band. Now let's go for it. We'd already started, you know, making columns of speakers taller and taller. And now it was like, Okay, what are the wavelengths involved? Um, well, we got to go 40 feet tall for the, for the low end. And so, uh, because that, <clears throat> that would control the vertical dispersion and project the low end out. Um, see, with a line array, in theory, the sound is coming in a cylindrical wavefront. The surface of a, of a cylinder um, increases at the square of the distance. Uh, or the, and the drop off of sound is the inverse of that. With a point source, you're dealing with the cube of the distance. So point sources drop off uh, an order of magnitude faster than they do with a, uh, a cylindrical line array. And that's why you can be up close to the, to the line array and then walk back, walk back, walk back, and it just doesn't drop off all that rapidly, you know? Um, one gig, uh, Santa Barbara gig, uh, Ron and I, uh, this is when the full... Uh, while the sound was happening, we walked. We must have walked back between a quarter and a half a mile away from the stage, and it was clear as a bell.
2: So amazing,
1: you know. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, of course, the other big thing was that you know that vocals weren't mixed with instruments in the in in the speakers, so you had this clarity that has not been duplicated to this day right uh, you know um there were issues of course there were issues the the noise canceling mics um if you got off mic a bit it you you lost it you know so mic techniques had to change right. and that was a real problem at, at times you know and and if the singer was moving in and out at all that would get pretty weird but used properly they worked great um I happen to think that that technology bears a second look. The, the overlooked thing about the uh, noise-canceling mics is that they totally canceled out backline sound coming in. So you didn't have that uh, delay of whatever, 20 feet or so of backline coming in mixing with the normal mic part of the back line, once again you get you get this phase cancellation and confusion. So um, by not having back line in the in the bleeding through into the PA, that was also cleaning things up. Right. I think some of these ideas bear a a second look. Uh,
2: right.
1: Given, you know, we know what the problems were uh, but we also know what the advantages were and that that backline cancellation is a is a pretty big deal they the dead subsequently when they got away from the noise canceling mics they went to the uh, the mats on the floor that would turn the mics
2: right on. We, we use that yeah yeah, we use and that that's and,
1: and for the same reason, because you right. don't get backline into the into the into the PA. Yeah.
2: So, so you have that to deal with. And uh, not, something like this has never been attempted. So I'm sure there's all kinds of problems oh, yeah. along the way. Tell me. Can you get, tell me if you can think of the one the trials and tribulations, that horror story that goes along with this wall of sound?
1: Well, there was that that Stanford gig where all the tweeters blew out, you know, but, you know, hey, what the hell, you know, Um there is a, that that ties into a funny one. Um, one of the guys who worked for Alembic and then wound up working for the dead, Dennis Wiz Leonard, um, got, Alembic was a JBL uh, EV and Macintosh dealer. And so, uh, you know, we sold the band all the gear. Um, so Wiz becomes the, the recon expert and pretty busy at that. So, somebody at JBL figures out that Wiz has been mixing and matching speaker cone parts. He's been putting paper domes onto D120s to turn them into, you know, the D120 that had the aluminum dome. And somebody at JBL freaked out that, that we were modding JBL speakers. And they called Wiz up and said, you know, you, you, you can't do this anymore. We're, we're not we're going we're to allow you to buy parts from us to do this. And <laughs> Wiz went to Ron and said, God, what do I do? What do I do? And Ron said, call him back and say, fine. Electrovoice would like our business. Well, that was the end of that right all the parts oh. you want baby <laughs>
2: <laughs> um as, as as amazing as this thing was as groundbreaking as it was as wonderful as it sounded as cool looking as it was it, it was a behemoth that was it was nearly impossible to tour with the thing am i right
1: yeah they wound up with two sets of scaffolding there there's a myth out there that there were two walls of sound there weren't
2: just the, uh, just there the was structure
1: scaffolding that would that would leapfrog and, yeah, it was, um, it was a ball buster, you know. I think, uh, I think the concepts could be applied to, uh, to gear today. And for one thing, you just automatically give up on the idea that human beings are going to pick up speaker cabinets and move them. You go, okay, this is all forklift land, you know. Right. And then the other would be to basically make the speakers become their own scaffolding in locking together uh, and, and all that, you know, right. right. Then, so there are ways also, you know, now, um, geez, what are we nearly 50 years later? God. Yeah. Um, uh, there are smaller, lighter drivers that do just as well. Um. Much smaller and lighter power amps that do just as well. You would, in a in a in a modern wall of sound, you would want to have them be powered speaker cabinets. You'd build the power amps in. Right. The other thing you could do, which Rinkus Hines has done, is you can do a digital front end in in the speaker cabinets, and then literally with uh phasing the speakers you can essentially you can have a a vertical line array but you can tilt the sound as you wish by uh by doing uh phase delays in the sound and uh and that that's a really that's a major breakthrough but also you know the you know, Class D digital power amps these days. There's so much power and so little weight, um, and and it's gotten to the point where some of them are awfully high-fi, and particularly for driving the the, the low end, uh, you can do it. It's still very hard to get away from wavelengths. You know, so you'd still want to do a 40 foot tall column for the low end.
2: Do you think any of this stuff, any of this new stuff that you're talking about, in in all honesty, sounds as good or sounds better than the Wall of Sound, or was that the pinnacle right there?
1: I think I think a modern system with modern drivers could sound at least as good as the Wall of Sound. Wow. Uh, the particularly when you get into um, the all important mid range, there are amazing. Uh, cone mid-range drivers these days and dome uh mid-range drivers um you know that there's there's some great stuff you might be able to even pull it down from being a four-way system into a three-way system and uh and that simplifies things a bit um you know because because these these Uh, full range drivers and and wide range mid-range drivers these days are are just amazing you know so
2: none of it will ever look as cool that's for sure we know that no (laughs) No one's no one's going to be like making their lego models and their home replicas of this like they are no no no.
1: that Anthony anthony koski uh mini wall of sound is just brilliant it's so cool
2: we've been following it on facebook well man oh yeah
1: yeah yeah i've been in touch with oh, you and,
2: have? That's great. Or, I, I,
1: yeah, giving him full encouragement on it. And,
2: yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing all this with me and with the listeners. I mean, this is not only the guitars and the wall of sound and all that are a huge part of the Grateful Dead's history, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to have you on and help me share that with everybody and you know give them a chance to learn a little bit more about it right from, for lack of a better term, right from the horse's mouth. Great, great, Rob. <laughs> So, greatly I,
1: appreciate it, and I really look forward to seeing you guys again soon. You know, we will
2: be out again. I enjoyed hanging last time, and I'm looking forward to spending some more time with you. So, everybody, a uh, big thank you. That's Rick Turner hanging out with us today. Thank you, my friend.
1: Great. Okay. Best of the band.
2: I appreciate
0: that. Wow. I. <laughs> I feel so fortunate to have Rick's story documented in spoken form, and I'll always be thankful for the time I got to spend with him. So thank you and rest in peace, Rick Turner. And that's going to bring us to the end of the episode, and I'd like to thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats and Beth Koritz at yourclarity.coach. And of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out their 70-plus music-related podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week. Or you can show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The music plays the band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. I'm about to hit the road, but I will be back as soon as I can with episode number 35. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. Things are good right now, and it's getting better, and we really want to keep it headed in that direction. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you out on the road.